we should all be reminded there are 12 days of Christmas. Let's turn, please, to Romans chapter 5. Today, I never consciously try to write a uh, New Year's Eve message or a New Year's message, but there'll be something about a forward look today. I take very seriously that the spirit of truth has guided us now into the study, which we call Romans, the epistle. I take it as seriously, if not a little more seriously, even than our study of Rev of the book, only because I've become more and more impressed in my soul by the importance of the word of God, the importance of being together like we are today. And of course, today's message will segue into a celebration of our Lord Jesus Christ, a celebration of our union with him and our unity together in him as believers, not only here, but those who could not make it today. We stand in for them. We stand in for all, recognizing that all the churches in Christ are with us, as Romans sixteen sixteen teaches in the B part. So today's message will simply be called a forward look, the center toward which we press, the center toward which we press. I've decided to take a strategy in teaching Romans, the strategy of the pincer movement in which the left flank and the right flank move to the center in a pinching kind of movement, but it's, of course, pincer movement. And that's our strategy for Romans. So I want to look forward to the center toward which these flanks are pushing. We could almost look at it, and I won't do it quite as mechanically as this, but there's this flank, Romans 1 through 4. There's this flank, Romans 12 through 16. And there's this center, 5 through 8. It's kind of a double center, 9 through 11. We push, push. And today I want to hit kind of the essential center, or at least preview, the center toward which we press. It's always good to have the objective in mind when you have a strategy. The objective, push toward the center. And that's a strategy that I've not seen Romans taught by, but that's the Holy Spirit for you. He always exceeds our expectations. I also would like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 57 briefly also. I want to mention that a little bit today. And with... That we are gone, we have gone one step further to sharpening our focus in exegeting the scripture, expounding a particular passage. We went through eight theological functional specialties. Now, Bernard Lonergan discovered those in a breakthrough study, and a very lot of things are called breakthrough today, but that was truly a breakthrough in which he identified eight theological functional specialties. And I've used them to study the scriptures. I've used them as implements for accuracy and implements for precision in the teaching of the word of God. There is a ninth one, one of his students and one of the editors that has edited many of his collected works named Robert M. Doran. And that's D-O-R-A-N. And you only have to say it once. It's not Duran Duran. It's Robert M. Duran. He coined or deployed a ninth theological functional specialty, which he calls horizons. Now, if you have the collection of Lonergan's writings, and I have most of them, most of the 23 volumes, I'm awaiting one of the most remarkable ones, which he simply calls the redemption. That's in the works. I hope that comes out soon. But horizons is the ninth one, and that's the one along with interpretation that we're accenting in the study of Romans. So to these eight theological functional specialties of Lonergan's breakthrough in method and theology, Robert Duran added horizons. And it's a subject that Lonergan himself devoted quite a bit of time to in his studies, especially volume 17. The word horizon can either mean a view that is limited by the capacity and the standpoint 
of the human onlooker, or it can be a view without limit, an unlimited view because of the unlimited capacity and the infinitely high standpoint of a divine observer. So to read Romans with the light on is to interpret Romans from the standpoint where an unlimited horizon is in view. Now, we can't capture all this unlimited horizon, but we have it before us. It's a universal one. It's a horizon which God sees and which we can see in some meaningful measure from God's point of view. Because his point of view is called a high and holy place. So consider Isaiah 57 in this connection. I'm quoting from the Holman Christian Standard Bible that grabs it up pretty good. For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. Now I like this. I like the designations of God in the scripture because God is incomprehensible. And he always will be to us. He will not be able to be fully comprehended or understood or known by us, but we can know him in measure. We can know him explicitly as he's revealed in Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. And as he's manifested under the power of the spirit of truth or the spirit of grace, as he's called, the Holy Spirit. And I like, instead of just using the name God, which today denotes a whole bunch of things and connotes a whole lot of ideas. I like this one, the high and exalted one, the unique one. He's unique. He is totally other than the creature. That's what theology does. It distinguishes the one who is totally other than the things that are made. He's called the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. This is what he says. I live in a high and holy place. Now you'd think if he were a king, and he is a king, and that's going to be extremely important in Romans because the gospel about God's son is an announcement of the universal dominion of the king of kings. And the king is God, and Jesus Christ is his co-regent, his divine and human representative on earth Kings of the earth may array themselves against him, but that's a fool's errand, and they'll perish in that way, as we've learned from Psalm 2. And you'd think a king would say, I live with my royal courtiers. I live with, in this high place, surrounded by exalted ones. But he says here, I live in a high and holy place, and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, he says, and revive the heart of the oppressed. Who dwells with him? My picture here is of a father who lifts his little child into his lap and says, look, look what I can see from here. Look at this. But now who are the oppressed and the lowly of spirit who dwell with the high and exalted one in a high and holy place? Who are the ones that are afforded, in other words, this horizon, this view, this standpoint? Isaiah 53, 7 identifies the one the scripture says, who like a lamb led to the slaughter, did not open his mouth. And then it goes on to continue to describe him in Isaiah 53, 7, calling him he who is oppressed and lowly of spirit. So who is in the exalted position next to the high and holy one? But Jesus Christ himself. But the plural is used here too. For Jesus Christ embodies a people. 
So who are these lowly and oppressed of spirit who dwell with the high and exalted one on a high and holy place? The idea we already begin to get is that the proud are not afforded this view. And the proud are those whom Romans brings down. There is a pride, a group bias that's riddled throughout the saints in Rome so that it becomes a bunch of scattered cells that are hostile one against another in a particular attitude that Paul is demolishing. As with any prophet like Jeremiah, the strategy of the word of God and the prophetic message is to pull down, to pluck up, to root out and destroy, and then to build and plant. Romans is plucking up the roots of group bias and pride and arrogancy. It is pulling down strongholds and observation posts that are high, but not the most high. But it's also building and planting, as we'll see. Jeremiah 1.8 talks about that. Paul identifies himself very much with Jeremiah, as we've learned before and we'll learn again. The description, then, is he who is oppressed and lowly of spirit. In other words, Jesus is the one who dwells with the Father in a high and holy place. He is the one who was oppressed and afflicted, and it did not open his mouth, which distinguishes him from a lot of oppressed and afflicted people today. But he also embodies a people. This is the one who said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, which is connected to this prophetic word, come to me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Come to me, learn from me. This is going to be also significant in Romans. The high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, lives in a high and holy place with the oppressed and lowly of spirit. So from there he views with the lowly an unlimited horizon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will elevate you, lift you up. Lift you up to see in some meaningful measure the horizon that he views. The description continues then. The oppressed and lowly of spirit. And Jesus himself is the one who is oppressed and the one to whose heart and spirit God gave life, to whose body the spirit gave life in resurrection. But it's all of humankind, ultimately, who are oppressed by powers that are too strong for us. Even the political oppressor who oppresses is oppressed by the power of sin. So we're speaking, however, now specifically of Jesus, and I hope, as usual, speaking of Jesus. Jesus was oppressed and afflicted. And what do the oppressed and the afflicted normally and naturally do? They protest, if they can. They open their mouths in protest, if they're able. They revolt, if at all possible. When I get to Revelation, or when I get to Romans, rather, chapter 13, I have a message prepared or a series of them called, You Say You Want a Revolution. We'll be discussing the revolutionary and where he ends up, where she ends up. The oppressed protest if they can. They revolt if at all possible. But what did Jesus do? Notice I didn't say what would Jesus do. Because that puts you into a whole realm of human supposition and presupposition and presumption and guessing. You don't know what Jesus would do. He would only do one thing, something that you would not expect him to do. With apologies to those who got the bracelet for Christmas, I'm sorry. 
So what would Jesus, what, let's just say this, what did Jesus do? That we know. I don't ask what would Jesus do, but I said, what did Jesus do? What would he do is a question that opens a can of human assumptions and guesses. What he did requires reflection on the gospel of God about his son. What Jesus did not do when he was afflicted and oppressed, falsely accused, whipped, scourged, spit upon, and crucified, what he did not do was open his mouth. In protest, that means. In reaction. He knew he was born for such a thing as this. He did not open his mouth. He committed himself, says First Peter. He wasn't passive, though, because in First Peter 2, 21 to 23, he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. And the one, the Father, who judges righteously, judges salvifically. He was expecting the Father to judge his oppressors by saving them. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. When he did open his mouth, he said that. When he did open his mouth, he said, finished. When he did open his mouth, he said, into your hands, O God of truth, I entrust my spirit. Which meant his whole being, spirit, soul, body. That his whole being was under the care of the Father that he entrusted himself to was demonstrated by a little thing we like to call his resurrection from the dead. His exaltation to the right hand of the Father where the oppressed and the afflicted one sits in a high and lofty place and we have the mind of Christ which means in some regards we have the horizon that he views. We see through his eyes. And seeing through his eyes, we see humanity as a field that is ripe for harvest, not as a field that is ripe for condemnation and judgment. So he, he entrusted himself to God the Father, who judges salvifically and mercifully with a mercy that triumphs over judgment. I don't know if you've ever had occasion to do what we used to call present your case or present someone to the Supreme Court of Heaven. And if I, I don't know about you, but I would say, I would interpret that as, let me present them to the Supreme Court of Heaven so God can thump them. Now it's more like I present my slanderers or those who speak evil against me, I, I present them to the throne of grace for their conversion or for their blessing or because it's the goodness of God that guides people to repentance anyways not thumping them it's just a difference of perspective it's a different place to me Oakmont Pennsylvania I abbreviate as OP in my notes because I date when I'd write something and put OP that's Oakmont, Pennsylvania, but it means something else to me. It means observation post. The observation post that God has given me for a quarter century of study in an upper room. So it's to the oppressed and lowly in spirit, whose spirit the Holy One revives. Now notice, it's not just they don't remain oppressed and afflicted. Their spirit is revived or given life. Their heart, as one translation says, in fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation says, giving patience, makrothumia, familiar word, giving patience to the faint-hearted and giving life to the broken-hearted. So, the Holy One gives life to those who dwell on high with him. And it's these embodied in Jesus, given patience and life, who are enabled to see what the high and exalted one sees. 
God elevates the humble, and he opposes the proud. He does this all the time. It's what he does. He elevates the humble. He opposes the proud. This is what the Romans, the epistle does. It elevates the humble. It opposes the proud. With a view to the proud becoming humbled by a divinely induced humility, which then exalts them. As I said before, God both elects and rejects, as we learn from Romans 9 through 11. But he rejects in order to elect, but he never elects in order to reject. God always judges in order to save, but he never saves in order to judge or condemn. I'm telling you the truth, Jesus said, if you've heard my word and believe the one who sent me, you've already passed from death into life and you will not come in to judgment, not come in to condemnation, John 5.24. God always elevates the humble and opposes the proud. When he elevates the humble, it is as a father who lifts his young child to see what he sees. On the horizon. He lets those who were once oppressed by powers too great for them see what was once beyond their horizon. He makes intelligible to us that which once was not intelligible to us, not known to us, and could not be known to us. He brings us up from a dim consciousness of God a very vague name and term, to a knowledge of the glory of God. He brings us from a mere self-consciousness, which is almost always painful, if not proud, to a knowledge of ourselves as men and women in Christ who can never be separated from the love of God. So the word horizon denotes a vista that is limited by the capacity and the location of the viewer. That's not all that horizons means, but that's all we need to know for today. It can also be a view without limit because of the unlimited capacity and the infinitely high position of a divine viewer. Again, and this is repetitious, and I want to get this, hammer this home, to read Romans with the light on is to interpret Romans from the point of view where a universal horizon is surveyed from the high and holy place of the one whose name is holy. It is the view offered to the saints of the Most High. So this I'll say first, as my first of second exhortations, of two exhortations before communion. Let 2018 be the year when we grasp, together with all the saints, what is the depth, the height, the length, and the width of the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. That means it surpasses any means of our own to make intelligible. Now, it's been communicated correctly that our oppressed condition under sin, and that's all of our condition in Adam, our oppressed condition under sin can only be grasped, understood, or comprehended by a retrospective observation from our new position in Christ. In his famous book, Pensée, which is thoughts or thinking, Blaise Pascal said, quoting God as if God is speaking, he says, take comfort. You would not be seeking me if you not, had not already found me. You would not be seeking me had you not already found me. 
We don't even know what sin is or what control under sin was until we're in Christ and view it in a retrospective survey. That is a, I'll just say, it's an enormous interpretive point to make in Romans. So this is indeed the perspective of the Apostle Paul in Romans, from Romans 6 and 7 especially. It should also be communicated, however, that Romans in toto, Romans as an epistle, and that's what I'm doing Sunday mornings at least for these first few weeks. What is it? Quidsit. What is its quiddity? What's its essence? What is Romans, the epistle, in toto, the Latin phrase in, I-N-T-O-T-O, in toto, in its totality? What is it? Romans in toto was written and should be read at an observation post from which a universal horizon of divine redemption can be viewed. In Romans 3, Paul cites Psalm 14, 1 to 3, which you can compare to Isaiah or Psalm 53, 1 to 3. Psalm 14, 1 to 3. The most notable thing about that is God surveys the whole situation of humanity. In all of its sequential generations, God sees the whole humanity en masse. That's why he can say he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, that's the human race en masse, Viewed, we view sequentially, generation by generation, God sees the entire humanity, the entire human race en masse as one. And that's the view that he wants us to see. So in Romans 3, Paul cites Psalm 14, 1 to 3, which deals explicitly with what God sees when he surveys the universal condition of the sons of Adam, the children of Adam. Romans 3.12 says they have altogether turned away, turned aside. In Romans 5 comes the explanation. And that's Romans 5 is part of the radical center to which we're pressing. We're pressing from each Side from the left flank one through four, from the right flank twelve through sixteen, pressing at once toward the center. Romans five is part of the radical essential center. In Romans five comes the explanation the disobedience of the one man Adam unleashed an extra human power called sin and its wages, which is death. On all the human race. Now I'm going to warn you right up front. This should not be interpreted genetically. Or biologically. Or even by the idea of a transmitted sin nature biologically. That is a wrong interpretation. Genome science or the study of genetics. Has seemed to put the lie to that. But we don't have to defend that. Because what Adam did in his sin in his disobedience, was unleash or allow the power of sin to have dominion over the whole human race and death as its wages. We don't have to explain that genetically. We don't have to get into the science of genome, the genome, which seems to refute this because that's not what Paul is teaching. But we'll get to that in more earnest when we hit Romans 5. The point is, The disobedience of the one man, Adam, unleashed an extra human power called sin, with a capital S, and its wages, death, with a capital D, which universally reigns over all of humankind. Now, if you want proof, this fact is proven by the sinful acts of every individual human being throughout the course of human history. And it's also proven by daily obituaries in our newspapers. Sin 
reigns and death reigns. Romans, the epistle, expounds, therefore, a universal homardiology. Homardiology is the study of sin, as we know. It's part of theology. It comes from the Greek word hamartia, which is sin. Hamartiology. A universal homardiology. Paul does this on purpose. And you know, we, we know the passage in Romans 1 through 3. We know, and we have to really do some fine-tuning of 118 to 32. The more I study it, the more I see it needs to be very fine-tuned beyond what any of us have done so far. But homardiology is the study of sin. And Paul presents a universal homardiology. And that's a fact and a reality that's made intelligible from God's high and holy perspective only. Only from God's high and holy perspective can we see the universality of sinfulness in the creation and in people. We're not born knowing that. We always say so-and-so is a good person. So-and-so has a good heart. That person that you think might have a good heart might fool you someday. When the price is right for their betrayal of you. They have a good heart. But then from the standpoint of Jeremiah the prophet who sees from the high and holy place. He says the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Nobody can know it. It's unintelligible. We cannot have the intelligibility of just how bad off the human heart is in the Adamic ontology. Until we see it from God's viewpoint. And so a universal homardiology is a fact and a reality made most intelligible from God's high and holy perspective, the emphasis on holy. However, on the other hand, the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, secures eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.12 calls it that. For the same mass of humanity, once oppressed by sin... And held captive to the fear of death, which is sin's consequence. Now, this is the essential center toward which we are pressing from both flanks of Romans. In my study, I've had many times where I've not sensed the presence of God at all. I've had other times when I felt that he was lifting me up. And the most important ecstatic moment I've ever had in my study was when I looked at Romans 5.18, and I think that that's the radical center, essential center, the heart of the heart of the matter. Because it captures Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen and emphasizes a recapitulation, a redemptive reconciliation of all things and a justification of all humankind. A rectification, a setting right. It's all in there. And so again, I'll say this is the essential center toward which we are pressing from both flanks of Romans. In his note, I always wondered if there was going to be a universalist who would write a translation of the New Testament. There is one. There needs to be more. But our friend Eric Diamond, who's going to Fuller Theological Seminary, sent me this book which I received in Florida. It's called A Translation, the New Testament. It's by a brilliant universal scholar, universalist scholar named David Bentley Hart. And I perused his notes. His 30-page preface is stunning. And his notes are quite good. But here's what he wrote. First of all, his translation of Romans 5.18 looks like this. He says, so then... Just as by the one's transgression unto condemnation for all human beings, so also by one act of righteousness unto rectification of life for all human beings. On that, David Bentley Hart, that's H-A-R-T, in his a translation, the New Testament, he explains, and this is note R on page 297 and 298. He says, quote, the strict proportionality of the formulation, speaking again of Romans 5.18, is quite clear here and in the surrounding verses. 
Just as the first sin brought condemnation and death, and then he, he has this in italics, to absolutely everyone. So Christ's act of righteousness brings righteousness and life to absolutely everyone. And then he says, whether intentional or not, the plain meaning of the verse is that of universal condemnation annulled by universal salvation. Uh Uh-oh, he said it, those words. Did he say universal salvation? Did he say universal salvation that annuls universal condemnation? Is that Paul's message? There's a lot of people that would say, well, I hope so. There's others that are saying, well, I'm pressing on toward a certainty about that. I'll say, yes, absolutely, that's what he said. That's Paul's message. But he's not just making that message. He's doing it in the context of an exigency in Rome, something that is a deep-seated problem that has to be rooted up from the roots and destroyed all of its fruit. His fruit has to be destroyed above. Its roots have to be destroyed from beneath as Amos 2.9 says. So I would say that this is in fact intentional. He says whether intentional or not, I'll step out and say this is in fact intentional. I'm stepping out on a limb, but the limb has been grafted into the olive tree. I'll say that this is in fact intentional on the part of Paul. He is intentionally teaching a universal homardiology and a universal soteriology, the study of salvation, in order to demolish, and remember his strategy in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 5, our, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and to the demolition of every high place that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. There's the highest place where God sits. Then there's lots of higher places where angels sit and men sit to make their judgments in partial knowledge. And oh, how many people have made their judgments, our judgments in partial knowledge in the interpretation of Romans. They failed, we failed to see the horizon therein, which is unlimited. Again, he is intentionally teaching a universal homardiology or universal sinfulness and a universal soteriology or a universal salvation in order to demolish certain group biases practiced on idolatrous high places, biases that boast in self-praise against the knowledge of the true God and in opposition to one's fellow human beings. Paul's, and this is what I'm going to call it emphatically in 2018, Paul's convinced Christological universalism. Paul's not a hopeful universalist. He's a convinced one. I'm persuaded, he said. Paul's convinced Christological universalism is on public exhibition, but it's on public exhibition in Romans and in many of his other epistles, but especially in Romans, within a demolition mission designed to pull down divisive group biases among the saints in Rome. And by so doing... He induces a humility which ends the pervasive, belittling hostility that Max Scheler named ressentiment. No word could quite grasp it except the French word ressentiment. It's not quite resentment. It's something worse. It is the pervasive, belittling hostility that Max Scheler named ressentiment. Conversely, by demolishing the structure and foundations of this ressentiment, 
Paul is in fact showcasing his universal soteriology. To put it in the plainest and simplest terms in case you go away and don't come back again. Paul is teaching a universal homardiology and a universal soteriology to put everybody in the same group as sinners, as condemned, as ungodly, and as rectified by the pure unconditional grace of God to show there's nothing that distinguishes you one from another, including your liturgical practices or your ritualistic practices or your service of Christ, which you may think is service to Christ, but may be done in your own human spirit without the Holy Spirit. That's what we hit a little bit on Wednesday night. That one might have stung a bit. Stung me. So by conversely demolishing the structure and the foundations of this Rasanama, Paul at the same time is showcasing his universal soteriology. It's brilliant how he does this. He demolishes arrogance, but he does it in the context of an exhibition of universal salvation in Jesus Christ. And he exhibits publicly a universal salvation in Jesus Christ in order to demolish group biases that divide the church and so that the experience of eternal life cannot be had because there is no pleasant unity among the brethren. It's brilliant how he does it. Here's another forward look. Romans is soteriocentric. Soteriocentric. It's a word that you're going to see more and more in print. Soteriocentric. Comes from the word savior, soter, or soterio, which means salvation, soteriocentric. Romans is indeed a soteriocentric Magna Carta, as it were. But I say that Romans is soteriocentric because it is theocentric, centered in God, and because it is Christocentric, centered in Christ. So the incomprehensible and totally other, capital O-T-H-E-R, which is God, is known by his universal saving act in Christ. That's how we know him. And that's how we are offered through the scriptures the way of knowing him. He is known in his act. You can say God is righteous as an attribute, or you can say God is righteous as an act that he performs in mercy toward all of humankind. The incomprehensible and totally other, the high and holy one who lives in a high and holy place, is known by his universal saving act in Christ and by the Spirit, Romans 8, we'll bring that to the fore, through a divine invasion of the present evil age, which consists of two divine missions. I'll say that again, because that's central too. Romans, what is it? Quids it. Romans is soteriocentric because it's theocentric and Christocentric. So the incomprehensible and totally other is known by his universal saving act in Christ And by the Spirit, through a divine invasion of the present evil age, consisting of two divine missions. The invasion into the present age is a rescue mission to liberate all creation from its slavery to corruption, which happens to include all humankind. As I say this, my heart is actually pierced a little bit as a pastor by those who won't stay long enough to hear this thing explained out, and they recoil immediately and run away from God, who desires to reveal himself in his universally saving mercy. Why are you afraid of that? Why can't you just hear it out first? then forsake him, then desert, then go absent without leave. 
And you certainly have. You don't need my permission. I like what Jesus said. Why don't you go away too, Peter? And Peter's only answer was, who am I going to go to? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. So then, the rallying point for all the saints and the center toward which we press in our study of Romans the epistle is the disclosure of a mystery that has been silent for chronological times immemorial, but which now, in this ongoing critical moment, is being manifested in the writings of the prophets which can now be, as the song said, written on the subway walls. The words of the prophets are written on the subway walls. I forget what song that Simon and Garfunkel or somebody wrote it, but it's been echoed in a lot of other songs. The meaning that when the prophets wrote their words, there were no subways. We live in a time when there are subways. The words of the prophets were once in the sacred writings And they kept silent, the mystery, until now, while they're written on the subway, they're graffiti, if you will. We should know them. The mystery is God's now revealed intention to sum up all, I won't say things, I'll say all beings, all things that have beings. God's plan, his purpose, his intention to sum up all things that have being, all beings in the heaven and on earth in Christ. Ephesians 1.10. Now, another gear here before we close. I, I do not think it's possible to keep Romans isolated from the rest of Paul's epistles and come to a proper interpretation of that epistle. Ephesians, for example, is essential in this regard. If, if Campbell is right, and I have no reason to assume that he's wrong on this, I did look at it pretty carefully. If, if Douglas Campbell is right in his book, Framing Paul, then Ephesians was written by Paul in a prison called Atapeia, or maybe Apatea. I don't remember exactly. My photographic memory is a little obscure. But from there in approximately 50 A.D., Romans may well have been written in 52, in the spring of 52 A.D., later than Ephesians. Paul seems to have clustered a whole bunch of epistles together. It's possible Romans to be as late as 57, but let's just say that 52 to 57, it was still written after Ephesians. Ephesians is Paul's pristine account of the gospel. He's writing to a church probably in Laodicea first, although it circulates to many other. Almost every epistle Paul wrote was intended, and the Germans have a word for this. They have a word for almost everything, but they have a very long word for it. It simply means with the intention of being overheard, the intention of being eavesdropped upon. In other words, he writes Philippians, hoping people in Corinth read it. He writes Galatians, hoping people everywhere else will read it, including Rome. He writes in, with the intention that maybe it'll be overheard in New Kensington 2,000 years later. Who knows? But Ephesians was written, and it, it's the most important fundamental Epistle Paul wrote in the sense that it's a pristine account of the gospel written to a church full of pagans that just suddenly ended up in Christ under the proclamation of the gospel by somebody, not Paul, who went there. And they find themselves having apocalyptically revealed to them that they are in Christ. And Paul explains it. And he says, well, let's, let me tell you, first of all, God's intention, the mystery of his intention in Romans 1.9 or Ephesians 1.9, was to sum up everything, recapitulate everything in Christ Jesus, both in heaven and on earth. In Colossians, another epistle in which he expands on it, he says, all things in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible, thrones and dominions on down. So that mystery is already there. That's what Paul calls in Ephesians 6, 18 to 20, the mystery of the gospel. The mystery 
of the gospel or the gospel that is a mystery. A mystery apocalyptically unveiled. So we have to have Ephesians from our standpoint to properly interpret Romans, I think. Romans ends with the reference to the mystery in Romans 16, 25 to 27. So the rallying point for all the saints, for certainly for the Tetelestai phalanx, and the center toward which we press in our study in Romans the epistle is the disclosure of a mystery that's been kept silent for chronological times immemorial, but which now in this critical moment is being manifested in the writings of the prophets. That mystery is now revealed apocalyptically, stunningly, shockingly, universally. God's intention to sum up all beings in the heavens on earth in Christ. So I don't think it's possible to keep Romans isolated from the rest of Paul's epistles and come to a proper interpretation of that epistle. And so Romans is all involved with the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalyptic revelation of this mystery, says Romans 16, 25, and 26. Listen carefully to this one. This is where the sword has been sharpened. Jesus Christ is not, put that all in caps, not proclaimed. He is not proclaimed apart from this mystery of summing up all people and all beings in heaven and on earth in Christ. Paul says it's the proclamation of Jesus Christ, kata, according to the revelation of the mystery, or if it's not the gospel. It's not really good news. It's good news for a handful of people called the elect. It's not such a good news for those who are supposedly called vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Failing to recognize that God endured them with much patience so that he could bring them into the elect. God rejects in order to elect, but he never elects in order to reject. God judges in order to save, but he never saves in order to condemn So, Romans is all involved with the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalyptic revelation of the mystery. The apocalyptic revelation, the apocalypse is of God. It's the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not proclaimed apart from this mystery of summing up all things in heaven and earth in Christ. So listen carefully to this. A proclamation of Jesus Christ that is not according to this mystery would not be the gospel of God about his son. Because when God talks about his son, he says, you are my son today, I have begotten you. Sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footrest for your feet. About the son, Paul wrote, the son will submit himself to the father so that God will be all in all. The Son is the subject of 1 Corinthians 24 to 28 and ends up with God being all in all. The Son submitting himself with all of creation to the Father. So, if you don't preach Jesus Christ, if I don't preach Jesus Christ, according to the mystery, then it's not the gospel of God about his son. It would not be the announcement of victory that Paul calls my gospel. It is no more possible to interpret Romans properly apart from the other epistles as it is possible to interpret this epistle properly apart from the writings of the prophets that we call the Old Testament. Because Romans, among other things, is a survey of the Old Testament. The apostle to the Gentiles cannot and does not discover this mystery. He's not discovering it as he writes. Or as he dictates. He probably dictated Romans the epistle to a man named Tertius. Or Tertius. Having discovered already. Paul already has discovered this. Having seen the light that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, which is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, he then writes, 
It unfolds to us and to our ongoing discovery, but Paul doesn't write and discover as he writes or dictates. Paul has already discovered, and he dictates what he's discovered for us to discover. Romans, the epistle, is concerned with the knowledge of God, with true knowledge of the true God, which isn't the knowledge that comes through natural theology the study of nature or the perception of the universe only. That's pretty hard to do since the natural person, the person in the Adamic ontology cannot be anything but hostile in his mind to God. So the revelation of God in creation can only invoke the hostility that ends in idolatry among mankind. It has and it does and today it does. Idolatry is more virulent today than it's ever been in human history, but it's cloaked with more self-righteous cloaks and with culturally acceptable cloaks. There is so much today that absolutely causes Jesus Christ to vomit. It has to do with subtle cultural senses of superiority, cultural superiority. Ultimately, it says one life matters more than another life. The white supremacist, obviously, blatantly, stupidly, airheadedly says the white life is more important than the black life. Radical black supremacists say the same thing about black lives. They say black lives matter, but white ones don't. White white supremacists say white lives matter, but black ones don't. And though people don't say those things openly, they mean it. They think it. They think their group is the elect, the select, the good. The rest are the bad or the ugly. That's idolatry, incidentally. And no idolater inherits the kingdom of God. You can't be an idolater and see the perspective that we're seeing can't see the kingdom of God. You can't see the domain of God that it's universal. Paul has seen already the knowledge of the true God revealed and embodied in Jesus Christ and in the event of Jesus Christ, which is an act of God in Christ by which all of creation in its cosmic scope is redeemed. Paul has seen the recapitulation of all things in Christ. This is the vision without which people remain oppressed and controlled all their lives by the tyranny of the fear of death. Living in the antiquated and obsolete Adamic ontology. And while they make much of wearing the clothes that are fitting for the season, they wear the man that is obsolete for the age of Christ. Being unaware that Jesus Christ tasted death for every human being to destroy the one who uses the fear of death as leverage to control his subjects, he's called the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. So the recapitulation of all things in the heavens and on earth in Christ is the mystery of God's intent according to which Jesus Christ is preached. So Romans 5 through 8 is one of the central sections that we're pushing toward, pressing toward. The other being Romans 9 through 11, which is not parenthetical, but central to Romans, toward which the right and left flanks, Romans 1 through 4 and Romans 12, 16, and that's oversimplifying it, but they both push toward that center. Romans 5 through 8, specifically, is a subdivision of the epistle which is bracketed and embraced by the love of God. I want to finish this real quickly, and then we'll move into communion. In Romans 5, 5 through 8, the love of God is poured out into our hearts. 
God is love, and God's gift to us is the gift of his own love. Love which God demonstrated in the Christ event by Christ dying for us while we were, in the horizon viewed by the one whose name is holy, yet sinners. In Christ, dying for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. In God's reconciliation of us while we were both actively and passively his enemies. That's the love of God demonstrated. In Romans 8, 35 to 39, at the other end of that subsection, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. On this love, again, I'll bracket today's message with my friend Bernard Lonergan. In Method and Theology, he wrote this, being in love, being dash in dash love, is of different kinds. There is the love of intimacy of husband and wife, of parents and children. There is the love of one's fellow men with its fruit in the achievement of human welfare. There is the love of God with one's whole heart and whole soul, with all one's mind and all of one's strength, Mark 12.30. It is God's love, he says, flooding our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us, Romans 5.5. And it grounds the conviction of St. Paul that there is nothing in death or life in the realm of spirits or superhuman powers, in the world as it is or the world as it shall be, in the forces of the universe, in the heights or depths, nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the end of this section. The beginning, the love of God poured out in our hearts. The end, we can't be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's five through eight, the radical center towards which we press. Whether intentional or not, get it? Whether intentional or not. In writing this paragraph, Lonergan has bracketed one of the two central sections toward which we are pressing from the left and the right flanks in Romans the Epistle. So I'll close by saying this. For Tetelestai Phalanx, let 2018 be the year or let it be another year of being in love. And now we commemorate the beginning of this year of being in love with the Eucharist, which demonstrates our fond affection for our Lord Jesus Christ. The ushers will come and take you to the elements, the bread, and the unfermented fruit of the vine. So follow the ushers' lead, please. The silence that we experience as everyone goes to get the elements is a time in which Paul says to examine ourselves. And as 1 Corinthians 11 teaches, we are to examine ourselves for many reasons, but 2 Corinthians 13 explains what that means. Examine yourselves to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is in you. And because Jesus Christ is in you, you are in him, and therefore a member of his body. So the second thing we do after recognizing that we are part of his body is to discern the body of the Lord. And as we've mentioned before, in a sacred sense, this means that we do what loved ones have to do in some of the saddest moments of life, identify the body of a loved one. We identify the body of Jesus Christ, our Lord, a dead body laid in a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But then we identify the body of our Lord Jesus Christ risen, speaking to Mary Magdala. And we see him saying, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. We see him then in his risen body. But we also discern the body corporate of Jesus Christ. It consists of all 
whom the Holy Spirit has baptized into union with Christ. All who have had apocalyptically revealed to them in God's own time and in God's own pleasure his dear son and have become a member of the what we call universal body of Christ, which is a not an end in itself, but a forecast of all creation being in him and recapitulated. So we are a harbinger of a universal reconciliation. Therefore, as Paul said in first in Romans sixteen sixteen B, all the churches in Christ greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches in Christ greet you. In this sense, we are greeting all the churches in Christ in all of the times sequentially of human history. We see that horizon. We greet them all. We salute them all. We celebrate our unity with them all. And with those who are today scattered across denominations, affiliations, differing doctrinal and liturgical practices and doctrinal views, but all in Christ. We are saluting us all. All in Christ are here with us in this small corporal's guard gathering where it's 10 degrees outside. We're gathered in the warmth of the unity of the body of Christ. And in the night that he was betrayed, and that's a stark fact of life, the betrayal of Jesus Christ by a close and dear friend indicated the state of man under sin, the oppression of sin over all. In the night that he was betrayed, he took the elements that we have before us, the bread that represents his body, the wine that represents the blood, he said, my blood of the new covenant that ratifies a unilateral covenant made in God's faithfulness shown in Christ's faithfulness to the universal salvation of all mankind. That's what we celebrate. We call affectionately to our remembrance, our Lord. This week and the past three weeks, I've been calling affectionately to remembrance my mother. And it's been very heartwarming. And this is what Jesus is saying, remember me. It's called to affectionate memory and fond memory of me. But then he said, until I come. So we celebrate not only what Jesus is and what Jesus did, without wondering what he would do, we also celebrate his coming. His universal apocalyptic appearance in which every eye will see him even those who pierced him and who hasn't pierced him. And every knee will willingly bend, every tongue happily praise him and express allegiance to him because we will all by that time have participated in his own allegiance to God the Father. We celebrate then taking the bread, eat this bread. With this cup, we drink it all in a toast to our Lord Jesus Christ, to him crucified and risen. Father, thank you for the wonderful privilege of allowing us to start our year, 2018, year of being in love, with this expression of love for our Lord Jesus Christ and for one another. And we thank you in his name.